right. Um, well, if you've got your Bible, you want to open to um, open to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 today. And we're continuing in a series. We started a series last Sunday on the Apostles' Creed. And that series uh, is... is uh, was really around, began with the idea of I believe, right? The first couple of words of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, What I want us to do today, to to kick it off, we're gonna do it in some creative ways over the series, but I want us to read it together. So uh, read it out loud uh, together. So if you'll join me uh, in saying this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And what we just read together is a declaration of faith. It is, it is a declaration that is completely countercultural to the world we live in. It is a, it is a form of, of rebellion, if you will, rebellion against the idea that uh, what you see is all there is. Uh, all there is is, uh, is is in this world, whether it be uh, pleasure or money or uh, family or whatever. We declare ultimate reality today. And Paul reminds us of this in Corinthians where he says, what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Uh, and we're being shaped and, 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 and driven by this, this idea. This confession of faith dates back for over 1,500 years and parts of it back to 1,700 years ago. And around the world today, as I've said last week, uh, churches confess this, confess it in uh, every language you could imagine. Uh, And we just had our few moments to confess this and affirm it. Last week, we saw how the Apostles' Creed brings clarity, connection, formation, and a framework for us. And this core, the, the, and it's because the Apostles' Creed captures the core of what we believe as Christians. It's been around this long because it is ultimately uh, the, a, a succinct summary of what we believe. It's not inspired. God did not write or inspire someone to write the Apostles' Creed. But the Apostles' Creed is, um, became a confession of faith for the church, summarizing what the Bible teaches. Because it's awful hard to, to just read the entire New Testament and go, we believe that, Right? Uh, but we can read the Apostles' Creed together and affirm the core doctrines of our faith. One of the lies that gets passed around in our culture today is, uh, is that belief is for, is for those religious people. Uh, belief is about religion, but that's not, it's not true. The truth is that um, it's ironic that in the West, as advanced as we are, um, the rest of the world understands they have beliefs, but in the West, we don't think we do. The secular West doesn't think we actually have beliefs. We don't believe things that we can't actually objectively prove. Uh, The truth is that belief is inherent to being a human being. We all, every person you, you work with, every person you see, every person in your community has beliefs about what is right and what is wrong. And they can't prove 
what is right and what is wrong. And by simply asking them, uh, you will see them make statements like, well, I feel like it's right. Okay, I I can say that you feel like it's right, but what if I don't feel like it's right? Should I listen to you anyway? And what, what's interesting is our, our, our culture is blind to the fact that, you, that um, beliefs, it has beliefs that it cannot prove. And here's how I know why. One of, the, one of the most obvious, like big signs, billboards that our culture doesn't get it is they look at other people and go, you should not try to convince anyone else what to believe. Anybody see anything ironic about that statement. It sure sounds like they're trying to convince you what to believe, isn't it? They're trying to convince you that you should not try to convince anyone what to believe. And that's the problem. The person, we, we don't see it. There's no one like framing this out. I think it's a deception. We, we did a series on the schemes of Satan. I think it's a deception in our culture that somehow we, we're scientific and all of our ideas are purely based on rational science and, and observation. But the truth is people cannot live without holding some beliefs that they cannot, uh, can't prove objectively. What's wrong, uh, the question ultimately you can ask someone is, is it wrong because you feel it's wrong? Or is, it, or is this thing wrong because it's absolutely objectively wrong? And you'll, as soon as they say, no, I just think it's wrong objectively for all people, they've just appealed to a system outside of themselves for right and wrong. But they have no rational reason for believing that. Why? So it's funny, even, even though our secular culture would say we don't, uh, whether it's Black Lives Matters or LGBT rights or whatever it might be, there's, there's these ideas driving the culture and people who do not believe in God, do not believe in anything transcendent, do not believe in the supernatural or metaphysical, that, that the physical world is all that there is, still appeal to the argument that this is absolutely right and all people should obey this, or this is absolutely wrong and all people should not do this. And that's the irony of it, is that they're underneath it are beliefs they can't actually prove. Christians believe a lot of these things are, are wrong. Racism, being abusing another person, these types of things are wrong, right? Um, but we don't believe it because we feel like it's wrong. I, uh, I, we don't believe racism is wrong uh, depending on whether we feel like it's wrong, right? We believe racism is wrong whether you feel like it or not because we have a, an understanding that there's a God who created all people in his image and, and, are, and have dignity and value. C.S. Lewis referred to this uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, as the natural law that's written on the heart of all people. Regardless of culture, regardless of, of human beings in where they are in the world, how far isolated they are as communities, there's certain things that you find consistent. Generally, there's no society that celebrates randomly murdering other people. There's no society that randomly, that, that just cel- simply celebrates lying as an ideal, as a good thing in culture, right? So you have this thing written on the human heart um, and it points to mere, mere Christianity, which if you've never read it, is Lewis's greatest book and maybe one of the greatest Christian books ever written, uh, explains this natural law and how it points to a God. Behind it, And this is what, what uh, in Acts 17 that we're looking at today that Paul is identifying as he's building out this idea of a God 
who we're gonna see today as we look at the second phrase of the Apostles' Creed, God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 31, he's in, Paul's in Athens, right? Athens, Greece, same place you can go today. You can actually go to the place where Paul spoke, where this, where this text is written about him, uh, and stand on the spot where he was engaging people. Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 16 following. Paul, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in, a, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's basically, it was Twitter. Uh, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also on the altar with this found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, they, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For, and he's quoting uh, the Old Testament here, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul is, is talking to the, the, the Roman, uh, to, to all these philosophers here, and they, they, they're informed by the Greek and Roman gods, which, you know, there were more you, than you could, you could count. And what was interesting, though, is what he pictures here, and, and the God he pictures is not this, the fickle, moody gods of the Romans or the Greeks, um, and, and not a God who was... Uh, constantly um, messing with people or, or trying to get them to follow all these rituals and rules to make them happy. No, this God of Christianity was unlike all the gods of their city. Athens was a city full of, of gods to the point, and you think about this, to the point they just wanted to make sure they didn't miss anybody, right? I mean, that's what it came down to it. They're like, hey, we got all these statues, all these gods. Um, what if there's one we don't know? Okay, let's, let's, we'll have a statue for him the God that we don't know. And, and I love it because in some ways it's saying like, we know there's something else, right? We, we know there's something else out there. And Paul is picking up on that and saying, what you are, are referring to is unknown. I am referring to you as known. Now this city had no 
no shortage of different kinds of gods for, for everything that you can imagine, every lifestyle that you can imagine. They had gods of beauty, of knowledge, of wealth, of sex, and more. Not like our city, right? I actually think that if Paul were in Boston today, he would say, he would be provoked. He would say, my, what a religious city. Now we'd all say, what, you know? But he would say, how many gods of, how much, how much uh, is the God of education worshiped here? How much is the God of money worshiped here? How much is the God of success worshiped here? Or, or uh, the God of medicine or the God of wisdom or the God of pleasure, right? And they had gods for all of these things in the Roman empire, um, but we don't name them the same things like Zeus and Saturn and Venus. But just like Athens, we are no less religious as a city. We look to the gods of our city to give us meaning and hope. We don't refer to them as gods, right? But, but who, how many people look to education to ultimately give meaning and hope and purpose to life? How many people look to money to give meaning and purpose and hope to life? How many people look at success or approval or pleasure for those things? And what can it be called if someone is looking at something for their hope, their purpose, their meaning, and their identity, but worship. That sure sounds like worship to me. How many people do you know who have a religious devotion to their career? In other words, let's say this, if you were to just turn mentally their career into God, just now name their career God, would it change their behavior radically? And the fact is, many of us know people, the answer would be no. <laughs> because they spend all of their time and their energy. They, they will even cut relationships out. They will step on people. They will do whatever it takes because this is their God. And they're looking at this God to give them things that they can't get elsewhere. That's worship. Same thing with pleasure, with money in our city. But what I want us to see here today and what Paul points to is a personal and powerful God that's the creator and recreator of life. A personal and powerful God who's the creator and recreator of life. So Paul points to, to, uh, to, a God, to a God who can be known, a God who cannot be controlled, and to a God who creates. A God who can be known is the Father. Paul's perceived the climate of the city. It says he, he was provoked in his spirit, right? Provoked in his spirit as he went in the city and he looked and he saw what people were worshiping. And I think, like I said, I think Paul would be provoked today. Why? Because listen, career, if career is your God, that never leads to ultimate joy and peace and flourishing of relationships, right? It never leads to a person who knows how to rest. It never leads to a person who truly flourishes as an entire human being, does it? You can't make your career God and, and still uh, pour into your family, have intimate, deep, beautiful relationships with your family. You can't. You will always sacrifice family on the altar of your God. And so I think Paul would be provoked at the way people worship. And it's, it's interesting. He says, it says when he engaged with them, he didn't preach. The word is actually reasoned. And in the Greek is actually the word dialogue. It's where we get our word dialogue from. Paul interacted with them. In other words, he took, he took the gospel ideas and he said, I believe in the marketplace of ideas that Christianity is not, not second class. 
that the gospel and the truth of who God is actually can hold its own against other ideologies and, 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 and religions. And this is exactly um, what, what Paul, how Paul engaged people. I think it's a lie of our enemy, honestly, that feeds us that, number one, people don't wanna talk about religion at all. I shared a statistic a few weeks ago, a, a survey was done that 80% of people said that if, if they have a good friend or a close friend who uh, their faith is really important to them, that they're not opposed to talking to them about it. They wouldn't be afraid to hear about it, right? But, but we've been told, no, we don't talk about those kinds of things. We don't engage about those kinds of things. So how ironic is it that Satan has, has convinced us that we have a God who can be, there's a God who can be known, a God who's a father, and yet we're afraid to talk to others about him, right? But Paul dialogued, he entered this space. Listen, he knew people were gonna make fun of him. As a matter of fact, at the very end, I didn't even read the passage, but right after this passage, it said some of them thought he was ridiculous. Some became Christians. And then some wanted to ask questions and wanted to know more later. But, but the point is, you and I are so afraid of seeming ridiculous. Listen, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Christianity, the gospel, the idea of the fatherhood of God has a beauty and a depth to it that can hold itself against any world religion or idea. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But who is this God that Paul is dialoguing about? It's this God who's a, who's a father that can engage uh, with his people. And he says, he ultimately says that people, every person is looking for God, right? Because he's ultimately pursuing, uh, in verse 27, that, that every person's ultimately searching, but what they're searching for is found in God. So let's, let's take your friend who's got the career, right? We all have that friend whose career is, is their God. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's their thing. What are they ultimately looking for in their career? It's a sense of maybe significance, maybe a sense of approval. Maybe they're looking for power. Maybe they're looking for a purpose. But whatever it is, there's something the career gives them. The career is just really a means to an end. Nobody pursues a career for the sake of the career. They pursue because it gives them something. What, what Paul is saying is behind that pursuit of the career is ultimately a desire to be satisfied in something that only God can satisfy. The person who looks to money is not really interested in just green paper or, or a, a huge you know, account in the bank and investments. They're interested in what it provides them, which is comfort or security or, or I don't know, significance. What does God give us in relationship with him? But the sense of comfort, of rest, I am significant because of who I am in Christ and who God is. And he says, Paul says, this God is not far off, but is near to each of us. He's an infinitely powerful yet personal God. And the beauty of it is when you look through the New Testament, this idea of God as father is, is not just near theological concept like the Apostles' Creed. You know, we can read that and go, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Okay, intellectually, I believe in that idea. That's never the case in the New Testament. It's never meant to be about that. It's an infinitely practical reality for everyday life and the way that you live. And I'll give you an example. In Matthew 6, uh, Jesus says in verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, where does Jesus go from here? 
Does he say, well, you know what? The problem with you people is you just don't have enough faith. And if you would just believe, then, then you'd have peace. No, he, he, what he reminds them of is verse, down in verse 32 and 33 of that passage. He says, your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says the fatherhood of God is infinitely practical because it steals away the anxieties and fears that are created when we feel like we're alone. When we feel like there is no one to to care for us, no one watching over us. Jesus says when you're stressed out at work, when you're stressed out with relationships, when you're stressed out with money, or you're stressed out about the future, Rest, your heavenly father sees you and he knows your need. Now, let me ask you, let's just make this very practical. If you really, really believed that, would that help at work this week, any? Shake your head. <laughs> yes, right? It would. It's, it's about as practical as it gets. It meets us at the points of, of some of our deepest weakness of an anxiety. So the fatherhood of God is not merely an idea, I have a father in heaven, just sort of the Lord's prayer, our father who art in heaven. No, it it just rolls off our tongue, but Jesus is saying it's deeper, it's meaningful, and Paul is saying God is near us. I have to say this, this fatherhood of God has been water to the desert of my soul during COVID. Like, true story. I mean, being stripped of, of something that's been very, close to like my identity for 25 years of ministering, of pastoring, of meeting with people, of serving the church, of preaching to a gathering every week, like gone, just gone. Now I'm preaching to a black box and, and, and I'm struggling with what's gonna happen to the church. I, there's nothing I can do. I have no power. There's no, there's, no, there's no strategy. There's no whiteboard session for COVID, right? I mean, like there wasn't anything I could draw up. All of that, all that I had learned in seminary, all that I had ever studied of other churches was useless during COVID. And there were some dark moments. There were some dark moments in this pastor's heart, but God never let me fall off. He was a father who kept meeting me in those moments. We have a God who can be known, who's close and personal, who's a father. And we as a church need to rest and rejoice in God, our father. We need to rest. Yes, rest. You workaholics, you need to rest. You need to know what rest means because you have a good heavenly father that loves you and he has given you rest as a gift just as much as he's given you work as a gift. Do you open that gift of rest or does it sit on the shelf? So God, want, God wants to draw us near and wants us to live out of this. I think that as a church, you know, one of the reasons we planted as a church is to be a community of the Father, a community where people are welcome, a community where people, no matter what their backgrounds or their experiences or their brokenness or their isolation or whatever, they're brought into the family of the Father. And I want us to recapture that this summer. But it's not just a God who's close, it's a God who cannot be controlled. He is God Almighty, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty. Verse 24, Paul says, Lord of heaven and earth. And does, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. The Roman 
Roman uh, cities were full of, of temples, places you go to worship those gods, the places you would go and bring your gifts. Even today, I've never been there, but uh, in Lebanon, there's uh, Bacchus, the, the Roman god Bacchus, as, as one of the most well-preserved temples of the ancient world. It's still around today. Some of you have probably seen it. Um, it's a beautiful structure. No one worships Bacchus anymore because he wasn't a real god. But <laughs> at the time, there were lots of places to go to worship God. And, and, and yet Paul is saying that, that God is fundamentally different. The Roman God said, you do all these right things, uh, and if you do it, I, we, we, might, we might give you something. We might do something. We might show you some favor at some point. If you do all these right things, these gods needed worship. They needed people to bring money to their temples. They needed people to worship them. I don't know if they had low self-esteem or, or anybody that occurred to, ever occurred to anybody that, that we're worshiping a God that says, I gotta do all this just so he'll actually do anything for me. These people needed, these gods needed people just like the gods in our culture today. What does the God of money demand but dedication, work? Christians, the Christian God doesn't need anything from you. That's a good thing, right? God, God's not up in heaven just wishing people, hoping you just throw a 20 in the offering basket later because he's gotta keep the lights on. You know, he hasn't switched heaven over to all the LED lights yet, and so the bill is still high. Um, he, he's not hoping that you'll, that you'll just get up and, and you'll say some prayers this mor- uh, tomorrow morning so that he can feel better about himself. No, th- this is, and it's totally counterintuitive, but we have a God who serves us. How bizarre is that? Not because we're that amazing and God is, gonna, is worshiping us. No, but he's a God who gives out of his love. He gives out of his generosity. Jesus came, said in Mark 10, 45, I, uh, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What kind of God, Roman God, ever came down out of heaven and said, I'm here for you. Let me serve you guys. Let me bless you guys. Don't worry about paying me back. <laughs> no. And even the gods that the people you and I know worship in this world are like that. Psalm 50 says, uh, you know, it says, uh, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. <laughs> right? What do you get the God who has everything? Right? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't give him, you can't add anything to him. He is completely sufficient. He has no lack. He's never wondered what it would be like to have this or that or to have this experience or that experience. And think about how it changes your life and my life if we get off the the treadmill of pursuing uh, the the God of of our work or the, the God of relationships or the God of pleasure or the God of comfort and we just cast those things off and we come before the God Almighty. And he says, get off the treadmill. I've already run the race for you through my son, the God who is self-sufficient. And listen, this is the God who has power to do what he wills because no, he, no human being can, God, can put God in their debt, right? You can't do something to get God to give you something. So God is then able to act completely sovereignly according to his will. That's the God we need. 
I won't sing it, but there's a really great kid song. You guys know this, it's gonna come out, right? My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Some of you are like, I have never heard that song in my life. I do not know that song. Others of you were like, oh, no, oh, no. Because you're an adult, right? And we don't sing this silly kid song, but that song stuck with me. And even as I was writing the sermon, my, the sermon, I thought about it. What a great truth. What? How would it transform your week? How would it transform your week? If, if every morning you got up and you prayed, my God, you are so big. You are so strong and you are so mighty. There's nothing you cannot do. What does that do to your heart? And Paul is saying, this is the God we worship. And we as a church need to get our heads and minds and our hearts around a God Almighty. The one who planted City on a Hill 11 years ago has done so much in our midst and so much through us and we're resetting as a church and we've got to get our hearts back around that. We've got to get our feet on that. That God wants this church to thrive. He wants us to make a difference. He wants us to reach our neighbors, our coworkers and friends with the gospel, to love those who, and, and serve those who need serving, the, to, to, to meet the least and the last among us. So we have a great God who can be known. We have a great God who cannot be controlled. And we have a great God who created all things. Paul says in verses 23 and 24 in his sermon, he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now you have to understand they, they had concepts of creation, their own, their own God. So they, they don't know where their gods came from. Their gods kind of showed up in a chaotic universe at some point. They don't know where the universe actually came from, but there was a chaotic universe and then there were some gods and then there were some wars that happened. And then out of that earth was created. That's really inspiring, isn't it? It's kind of an accident, I guess, uh, that the earth was created. But we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. We, we believe in a God who, who didn't create. You know, I've heard people say over the years, oh, oh, you know, God made human beings so he could have relationship with us. Well, that would make God deficient, right? Or insufficient on his own. So God was just kind of hanging out and he was lonely and out of his depression, he made the universe and some people to hang out with. What kind of God is that? That's not the God of the Bible. No, the beauty of the God of the Bible is that God was already in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity. And by the way, I know you're like, well, I don't know how far God goes back. Time is a, is a construct of, of the reality we live in, isn't it? If there were no stars and there was no light and there was no universe, could you detect time? No. So before time... There was no time, but God existed. So how long has God existed? Yes, <laughs> God has existed always. And we showed up on the scene, so we, and we think linearly in time, but, but what if time is like this table and I'm looking at this whole table right now and that's how God is? We have a God who did that and then out of love, out of the union of the Trinity as a community created the heavens and the earth and made human beings in his image. 
the awe we feel at a beautiful sunset. And this is, again, I, again, you don't have to be a Christian to look at a beautiful sunset and feel a sense of awe. You don't have to, to, to see the, the smile of a little baby and feel something move inside of you. You don't have to, to, be a, a, to, to believe in God to go stand on the edge of, a, of, of the Grand Canyon and be moved or go stand at the ocean and, and, and be inspired, right? But the question is, is and C.S. Lewis says this, if there is that reality that kind of calls out something bigger in me, that, that kind of moves me to think of something bigger, then maybe there's a reality out there that matches that. And here's the thing, I think every time you've been inspired, if maybe the sunset's beautiful as we go outside tonight, if that inspires you, that's God, God's billboard going, I'm here, I'm here, I'm God. And I'm good. And, and it's drawing people to himself. That's what Paul means when he says God is near to all of us. But God is not just creator. Verses 30 and 31, it kind of seem weird, but, but you have to understand what Paul's saying there. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So he call, he's calling all people now, why? Because Jesus has come. And God is not just creator, God is recreator. God just didn't create the world because the world and the world's gone, falling apart, right? God has stepped in and is redeeming and recreating the world. And he began, Jesus is the firstborn, the New Testament says, the firstborn of creation and the first fruits of the new creation. So Jesus' resurrected body is the first taste of this full recreation. And the beauty is anyone who trusts in Jesus, anyone who comes to confess their sins to Jesus and, and to receive the grace that, that he gives through paying for your, your sins, you get to be a part of that new creation that God is working. And this is the God we serve. I close with um, just a... I started following a guy about 10 years ago um, on Twitter and actually friends with him on Facebook. We've never met, but he's, his name is uh, Makoto Fujimura. If you, any of you that are artists might know him, he's, he's, a, he's a pretty well-renowned artist, um, strong, strong believer. I think he was actually part of Tim Keller's church in New York, Redeemer. He's author of several books on the intersection of faith, culture, and arts. He wrote, his most recent one is Art and Faith, A Theology of Making. And he does different kinds of art. He's mostly known for his painting. But he's gotten into the, the, to an ancient uh, art form, um, a Japanese art form called kintsugi. And what they did is uh, they, would, they would take a broken ceramic, uh, ceramic bowl um, or some kind of ceramic object, and um, it would just be worthless, right? This, this what used to be a beautiful handmade crafted bowl that's now just in shatters. And the artist would take it and, and begin to form it together again and pour gold through all of the cracks and recreate and actually make something far more valuable than what was originally there. And I think, and as I remember hearing him like reflect on that and how God is recreating, I thought he does that for each of us. We bring our broken lives, we bring our sin, we bring our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our anger, whatever it is, and God's got those pieces and he, he takes everything away that's useless and he pull, pulls it together and through his son Jesus binds us together and makes us something new. 
the beauty is that he's not just doing that for us individually. He's doing that for us as a church. He's doing that for us as a community of people. And I believe that this, this whole COVID, this summer leading into the fall is all God, the master artist, creator and recreator, bringing us together, creating something new, creating something more beautiful, creating something that's valuable. That's the God we worship. That's God Almighty, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the invitation that he offers to all of us is to call on him, right? That's, that's, that's what Paul says, call on him while he is near. The Father is near to all of us today. And he's inviting you, and he's inviting me to call on him. Some of you might be for the first time to call on him by faith and, and, and look to Jesus and confess your sins and, and plead with him to forgive you and cleanse you and, and live in you. Uh, for, for others of us, it's a confession of, Father, forgive me that I've not been walking with you as Father. Forgive me that I've not been looking to you as almighty, all-powerful. Forgive me that I've not been looking at you as my creator and the one who's recreating me and making me into something new. That's our prayer today. That's my prayer as we close. Let's bow our heads. What a glorious God you are. A God who is not far off, but who is near. A God who is almighty and more powerful than we could ever fathom, but who reveals yourself as a father, who's compassionate and kind and merciful and gracious. We thank you, Father, that you didn't just create this world, but you are recreating a people. You're recreating each of us through the power of your son, I pray that we would look to you, God, not, not, not just knowledge of you or information about you, but that we would practically live that out this week. That maybe every morning we would simply get up and just pray, my God, you are so big. You are so strong and you are so mighty. There is nothing you cannot do. And may that draw us close to you. May you move in and through us, God, and may we engage those who are in bondage to the gods of this city and share the hope that the God who has come in human form and died and risen to give us life to anyone who will believe. In your name we pray, amen.